Hello and welcome to the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. I'm your host, Olivia Cummings, founder of the jewellery brand Cleopatra's Bling. In season three of the podcast, we are continuing to bring you interviews with creatives and craftspeople that we love. In between episodes, we're also telling short stories for you to cook or commute to. Join us as we delve into topics from history and design that inspire our artisanal collections. So what are we talking about this week? A mineral that features in our collections and in jewellery around the world, but that over the past thousands of years has been used to decorate human skulls, adorn teeth, used as a belt buckle, and even to plug certain orifices during ceremonial rituals. Uh, Did I hear that correctly? This sounds interesting. You did, James. I'd like to take this opportunity to welcome my good friend, James Gilligan, to the podcast, who's going to be co-hosting these fun fact episodes with me. Hi, James. Hello. James is one of the best Melbourne, he's going to, he's rolling his eyes, everyone. He's one of the best (laughs) Melbourne musicians that I know and an incredible friend. We've spent a lot of time locked up in lockdown Mm. together. Mm. We had good times. We cooked a lot, cried a lot. Watched interesting films. Lots of tears. Lots of tears. Lots of tears. Why not? Cathartic. Yeah. So this episode is a bit of a journey. Today we're going to talk about jade. And although we cover some unconventional uses for it, it is safe for work. So we start the story in China, which has a very long history of using jade. Mm. Have you ever been to China, James? I have. I love China. um, I've been there mainly for... I've been there performing once. And also, I took it like a, a trip um, with my partner at the time, and we went um, to visit the Sichuan peppercorn trees because it's my Sichuan food is my favorite food, my favorite origin of uh, Chinese cuisine. And uh, we just had a spectacular time. It was um, we went to visit the peppercorn trees, and on the way up, right before we got there, uh, we got stopped by a full full uh, road of cars and. Uh, the, our guide went in and asked asked what was happening if we could get the cars moved, but actually there was a huge wake for one of the a very important person in the community, um, and the people very nicely ended up inviting us in, and we had a lot of very strong rice wine and <laughs> and I rolled them all like Australian cigarettes and they loved them and they were I, I just made like ten new friends and we ate like the most insane home cooked Szechuan food. Um, wow. I've got a good photo of us, you know, sitting with 10 on each arm, everyone very, very pissed and <laughs> it's just fabulous. So it was, it was actually better than visiting the peppercorn trees, but we did visit a few on the way back. So I got my photos with the peppercorn trees too. Incredible. I'm curious what they look like. For some reason I'm picturing, you know, those peppercorn trees around Melbourne with like the pink husks. Mm-hmm, I'm mm-hmm. kind of picturing that. They're basically just like, you know, little little seed. I mean, they look like a regular peppercorn, but they sort of got, got a little shell around them, a little opening shell. But they're Incredible. great. They smell amazing. And as soon as you put them in a wok for, for you know, one minute, it's just like the, smell the best is... smell in the world. Yeah, I remember the smell from when you've cooked for us mm. as well. Mm. And I'm not really into spice, but Szechuan for some reason was fine. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a whole it's different thing. Different than chili. Yep. Numbs your mouth. Yep. Yeah. It's amazing. What does chili numb? Your stomach. Yeah. And your, and your heart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is making me desperate to get back out there into the world. Mm. But for now, all we can do is travel through food, I guess. Well, yeah. I, I, I recently, um, you know, I just renewed my passport, which was the funniest thing in the world to do. It is. It's like, yeah, I've paid for my next 10 years. But it's, it's one of those things of like, I'm trying to be 
I'm trying to w- will it into happening. Yeah. So it's like, well, get the passport. You better be, you know, try and push for it. The necessary evil to try and get back some, you know, human connection again. And There's only so much you can do on the internet. <laughs> so we're going to talk about Jade. And Jade is a stone that I kind of came to late in the history of this brand. Like before that, I was more into emerald. And then I sort of started discovering Savarit Garnet, which is a really bright green stone. Mm. And Jade. Jade is a little bit um, softer in appearance than Savarit Garnet. Um, But, yeah, really fun stone to work with. So it's an ornamental mineral referring to, we're going to get a bit scientific here, which I I had to clearly look this up. It's not my off the top of my head. So jade is an ornamental mineral referring to nephrite, calcium and magnesium and jadeite, which is a mixture of sodium and aluminium. I really wouldn't think of aluminium as being in a stone, would you? No, no I mean, you know, chuck us the periodic table. and we <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's always so surprising when you read things that, are, uh, you know, amazing. go into things like stones. Like Chemistry. It's yeah, fabulous. You don't expect, yeah. like when I think of aluminium, I think of just a, a sheet of, of metal. <laughs> So it comes in a variety of colours such as grey, beige, violet and green, which is also new knowledge to me. I really thought jade was just a green stone. So glad we're delving into this together. It's only found in a few limited locations around the world because of the specific geological conditions required for its formation, which also reminds me of opal because I think it, you know, opal Mm. grows in specific locations. The best opal comes from Australia So one tectonic plate must slide under another while the upper plate heats for jade to be formed in any one location. In those places where it did exist, it became a valuable and status-imbuing resource. So back to China, it's nephrite jade that has the longest history, tracing back to the Neolithic period. This was a period in time in which human societies were undergoing dramatic shift from the hunter-gatherer to agriculture. It was a period of so-called big men, ambitious males who wished to capitalise on this cultural shift and the accrual of wealth in certain hands that it permitted. So jade began to have a great symbolic significance thanks to its various properties. A quote from Confucius in the 5th century BCE outlines these. Its soft, smooth and glossy character represented benevolence. The fact that it is compact and strong represented intelligence. Its angular but not sharp or abrasive nature represented righteousness. Finally, its flaws that neither concealed its beauty nor its beauty conceals its flaws represented loyalty. Wow, there is a lot to unpack in that quote. That's great. I mean, I I like this having a focus back on, you know, the mythology of what stones have meant in cultures at various times. You know, it's, it's an important thing to... I, I always like that, like it, having an item or having things in your life that, you know, I have it with musical instruments very strongly. Mm. It's like you have an instrument and, and you kind of, you get a lot of meaning out of where it where it originated, when it was built, yeah. you know, who built it, how, like what it was culturally at the time. Yeah. These things like with stones and with, yeah, with jewelry as well. I'm sure it's the same thing, like pieces of jewelry have their own mythology for a person individually, but also like a huge historical Mm-hmm. like impact like uh, importance and i think it's so you know this is sort of like the beauty of humankind is when we actually get to lean into these things and definitely it's awesome to think like it, i love that to like the to Confucius get into this quote yeah it's just amazing like how did how, what this meant to a culture and a, and a movement and 
Yeah, and that awesome. and that we can and that we've got this quote documented. I find also so fascinating. Mm. Like how great. Yeah, oh, like we always beat up how like humankind and humanity, but then you think this is just an example of how awesome it is. Really, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so back to Jade. Thank you for that interesting little no worries interlude. Mate. I love it. Jade, a oh, Jade. James, <laughs> gosh, too many J words. Yeah. <laughs> James Jade Gilligan. I like Jade. <laughs> Call me Jade. All right. Things have changed in this studio. <laughs> so value was also attributed to it based on the locations in which it was found. So in riverbeds and on mountains. Mountains were lofty locations associated with the ascension of spirit to heaven. It's no surprise then that when the big men of the Neolithic age died, part of the burial rituals involved interring them with items made from jade. For example, a striking early use of jade was as part of a complete burial suit made from small squares of jade, wired together to cover the entire body. I feel like my business brain just wants to go to how much that would cost. <laughs> Because that's a lot of jade. Yeah, shit, yeah. That's a lot of jade. Bit of royalty. Yeah. All parts of the skin were covered, including the face, jade gloves for the hands, and jade shoes for the feet. That that's, is That's going to look good on stage, mate. I've got to get one of those. Jade Gilligan. Honestly, <laughs> you should it, wear it. I love it. Go and get the shovels. Let's go. Let's go and find them. <laughs> when excavated from these burial grounds and then displayed in a museum context, many members of the public mistake jade for wood. So this is because of the curious coating which covers jade pieces, in particular those that would have been worn or stored near the head of the dead body. So archaeologists believe this is due to the Chinese not having the same mummification processes as, for example, the ancient Egyptians. They did not remove the internal organs, the brains of the deceased would liquefy in their tomb and leak out, coating the jade in light brown residue. That is awesome. Yeah. It's very visceral. That's great. So actually, like, this is a little bit off topic, but on the topic of mummification, I recently learnt through beekeeping that bees, and bees are, you know, pretty, I feel like, pertinent in any sort of context today because mm. they're very necessary. Mm. Um, they, so if a foreign entity comes into a, a hive, for example, a mouse, any kind of rodent or a beetle, mm -hmm. and it's going to disrupt the... The environment within the hive they kill it and then they mummify it in wax so that it can't disturb wow so none of its yeah, yeah. decomposition disturbs the yeah. hive like that's pure intelligence that's I amazing could not, i can't get over this fact i've known it for about six months and i'm constantly replaying it in my head wow yeah if only you could do that with housemates <laughs> i'll make sure i'll make memo that they don't get sent the update right. of this podcast it's all right it's all right good humor <laughs> So if only you didn't have to... Anyway, I'd love to mummify a lot of people in my That's life. That's great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just, yeah, if I can liquefy their brains. Yeah. Shit. Come on. Brown, brown residue. <laughs> like it's, it's a lot to deal with. So perhaps as part of a ritual designed to prevent this, another use for jade in Neolithic China was as a plug for the orifices of the body. Shit, yeah. Yeah. 
So the Chinese believed that the life essence of a person could escape after their death through their bodily orifices. For this reason, they would be entirely plugged at their burial. Eight plugs for men and nine plugs for women. Yeah, we'll let everybody at home... We'll just let you mull count, that. Yeah, count them off. <laughs> which Double orifices? Check. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So alongside these plugs, many other rituals and ceremonial objects could be found dotting tombs, including six jade pieces representing earth, sky, and the four cardinal directions of north, south, east, and west. Makes me feel like our society is just so boring. Well, I'm going to, well, when I'm buried, you know, when I, well, well, this is a very good document. When I'm dead and gone, I I want jade plugging. This is the brief. Yeah, yeah. I'll get, get you your jade it. shoes. Yeah, yeah. We'll source it now. Yeah. Yeah. I want lapis lazuli shoes. <laughs> <laughs> Heels. Get them. Get them. Little like... Life short. Yeah. <laughs> kind of rena- renaissance shaped yeah. heels. I'm, yeah, I'm into it. So cutting jade is a very difficult job with it being one of the hardest precious stones. I'm guessing if they're saying it's one of the hardest, it could be an eight or nine, which would be around a sapphire. Or diamond is the hardest. It's like a 10. Mm -hmm. And then I always recommend sapphires because they're super hard. But I didn't know jade was that hard. So it's incredible. And I I actually wondered about that with jade bangles because, you know, it's the kind of thing you can imagine smashing. But everyone seems to have a jade bangle in Chinese culture. And they survive. They survive. So it makes sense. So in ancient times, it is believed it was accomplished using a slow moving bamboo rotary drill in combination with a sand and water mix. Wow. Mm. The ancient Central American civilizations, the Olmec and Maya, also used jade copiously in religious, ritual and utilitarian forms. They too would use a gritty substance to be able to work their local jade. However, in the case of the Maya, they would grind up other precious gemstones, garnets, and apply it with gum to a piece of wood, using it as a file. It's incredible. Bit of ingenuity, mate. That's... Really incredible. Garnets actually like interestingly like similar to jade. I feel like garnets don't get the credit they deserve in Roman jewellery because right. people think they're rubies a lot of the time, but actually they use a lot of garnet and they use a lot of savaret garnet, mm-hmm. which is the green stone instead of emerald. For some reason, yeah, people mistaken them for other stones like ruby or emerald. Jade has been used to demonstrate the breadth and sophistication of Mayan and Olmec society as the jade colours to different regions vary highly across different areas. When a violet jade showed up in a town far away from where it's naturally available, archaeologists were able to summarise that travel between cities in these vast civilizations was widespread and sophisticated. The religious practices in these societies were also complex and jade was used to create statues and figurines of many different kinds of gods from a traditional god of maize, which would be corn, to a striking figure of Aztec mother goddess. I cannot. Tlazotl. I'm just going to spell that out. T-L-A-Z-O-L. T-E-O-T-L. My tongue can't do that. That's good. In the throes of childbirth, with a baby emerging from her as she rides in the last stages of labour. While jade is much too heavy to create architectural features or large-scale statuary, which could crumble on itself from its own weight, 
the Olmecs did create life-size heads from jade, as well as face masks. The latter would have been worn by kings who also adorned themselves with jade tooth gems and jade earrings. It's incredible. You know, I really wanted to get a gold tooth for a while. Yeah, get in there. I mean, imagine rocking up in the club with that. It's, with that one, I with reckon the, it would. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah, I mean, a jade face mask. Do you think the jade tooth would like slip on or would it be like a replacement of a tooth? Because like, like in, for example, like Syrian culture or sort of more nomadic cultures of Turkey, there's a lot of gold teeth. Yeah, but it's actually but used it's for actually, function. Yeah. Yeah, it's function, not, not bling. Mm. Yeah. So I wonder like in this case if it was a purely ornamental sort of cap yeah. in jade or I feel like this is a topic to delve further into in Love my that. free time. <laughs> we can see these on the skeletal remains that have been recovered by archaeologists in the present day. However, we can also see jade decorations on bones that were done on exhumations formed by the Olmecs themselves. Skulls were sometimes dug up in a year after burial and crushed jade and other jade ornaments applied. So they'd bury the thing, yeah. wait for it to decompose, get the skull out and then and then adorn it in jade to like honor the dead. So basically, yeah, it kind of puts the context of like, you know, when you can buy like tequila in a skull. Yeah. Bottle <laughs> and you think yeah. like, oh, that's a bit morbid. But then you think, no, this is like fully... Yeah. Their very, very deep folkloric history. That's right. Like the West, we don't understand skulls or bones or... Yeah, we've got a very... Yeah, all that stuff is quite quite funny here. We, it's, it's like, you know, ashes to ashes mm-hmm. with the dead and that, that's sort of the end of the story. I think that it's so nice, you know, celebrating... Uh, you know, that's, that's just of the Western culture. I mean, Indigenous Australia is amazing how they celebrate. Yeah. It's just... And, you know... So many cultures that do that, I just find so. It's great. I, that's that's. It's not enough for me to just go like, all right, in so you yeah. go, in yeah. you go, in your box, in you go. Oh, cry, bit of crying. And then it's, it's like, just, nah. and then you just avoid the the feeling afterwards because no, you can't. Oh, we're not yeah. taught to deal with grief in our culture. Yeah, or we go. Yeah, we go. You know, I mean, I'm right into the. Maybe I'll. You know, maybe, I promise today. I promise to dig you up after a year. Thank you. And adorn your skull with jade. Thank you. I mean, I'll, I, you know, I'll risk prison at that point. I'll be beside myself. <laughs> I'll make myself. sure there's a, like a document that states that that's what I, that, yeah, I'm going to need my that. Wishes. Well, I mean, this, it, so it is your wish. So this is, this can be the document right now. Verbal. Yeah. This Love is the it. verbal document. Love it. For all those listening. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Why not? At that point, like my soul will be looking down thinking this is great. at I a know. party. Well, you know, I'm into taxidermy. It's, I do. It's all good. I do. <laughs> What's the difference? Jade was also found in New Zealand where it was an important resource in Māori culture. It was represented by the Taniwa Potani. Taniwa are large supernatural beings that live in caves and deep waters. Like I'm going to butcher this and anyone hard. from Māori culture yeah, yeah, yeah. will be like, what's this white girl doing on air? Well, she's giving it a red hot go. Pounamu was a kateki, a group of guardians or natural features like sky, sea and land. His rival was Faitupu. Taniwa are large supernatural beings that live in caves and deep waters. I just want to have a little disclaimer for everyone listening that I do not know how to pronounce this all correctly, so please forgive me. Don't. I'm not, I'm not going. Okay. You don't corpse. Don't go. His rival was Fatipu, the Taniwa of sandstone. 
and they would constantly battle one another. The story goes that one day Fatipu was pursuing Ponomu in battle and the latter took refuge in the bay of an island. While in this bay, he spied a beautiful young woman named Waitaiki swimming in the ocean. He captured her and took her to the mainland to be with him. But Waitiki was already married. Her husband, Tamuhua, was a very powerful man. Using a ceremonial dart, which he placed on the ground, he recited a magic incantation. What ensued was a chase southwards across the country. Each time Tamuhua would arrive at a new location, Potani and Waitaki had already moved on. They moved south through the North and South Islands, then back north, up through a river. Sounds really exhausting. Sounds great. Sounds like a holiday. I actually toured New Zealand when I was in the Australian Children's Choir. That's all. All right, give us a song. (laughs) Rip it off. Go on. Danny boy. (laughs) At this point, Tamahua knew that he had Potani trapped. There was no way for the pair to continue to journey up the river, and the only way out was back down to where Tamuhua was waiting. Patani resolved that if he couldn't have Waitaiki, then no one could. He turned her into Ponamu, otherwise known as Jade. As Jade, she sunk to the bottom of the riverbed and Patani snuck away to hide. God, it's really grim. If only, you know, if only we could do that to the to the ones that no one else should have. Yeah. Turn them to Jade and the, drop them in the ocean. There'd be a couple of us down there. It's murder, I think. It's murder. Yeah. yeah. Tamahua advanced up the riverbed where he could not find his wife, only a treasure of beautiful jade. Māori elders have explained that this story shows off the wealth of geological knowledge and understanding of Māori people. In narrative form, it allows for the transmission of vital information to other members of the community, acting as a resource map and describing interactions between different kinds of rock in the form of metaphor. Finally, as we've established, jade is a very difficult mineral to cut and work with. For the Māori, there were no garnets nor bamboo to work their stones with. Can you guess what the stone they used to grind jade with was? Mm, no idea until I look at the script and then I've got the answer. But <laughs> it tell was me. sandstone. Ah. The element represented by the spirit with which Potani is always fighting. An allegory for the way that sandstone is used to cut jade. It's beautiful. Beautiful bit of mythology there on jade. The Mary culture. I like that. Everything about Cleopatra's Bling as a label is built around connection, whether this be between the past and the present, different cultures and practices, or between our team and you. At the end of each mini-sode, I'll be answering a question submitted by you as a way of staying connected. I want to share what I've learned through years of making jewellery, growing a brand, immersing myself in history and being taught by the artisans that train me in the art of working with gold, silver and gems. Monique Sweep asks, do you have a creativity process or inspiration process? How do the ideas come to you? Okay, so in terms of my creativity process, I think I used to think that creativity just landed when it landed and with age and more experience, I've actually realized that it's quite a dedicated practice that needs daily attention. 
So I find that when my morning routine is good uh, and not hurried and frantic, that my it sort of sets me up for the rest of the day. So meditation in the morning, some access to nature, whether that be a little walk or even just sitting outside with my tea. In terms of the actual process, I think sometimes I have the wax uh, equivalent of writer's block. So I sit down and I'm like, I don't like anything I'm making. So in those, in those instances, I just like get up, go do something else and then come back to it rather than sort of sit there agonizing over it. However, in general, my process is relatively quick, I think, because of the way that I've gotten to know how I like to work, which is on my own with a podcast going or something on Netflix, music, whatever it is. Um, And then I just chip away at a collection over generally a couple of weeks, sort of nonstop. And then really it sort of grows from the initial design into the sampling. And then you can sort of feel the transition of the kind of creative process that I'm working on. So then it turns into the photo shoots and the, the naming and, you know, the way we want to message around the designs. So it's constantly creative in the business. It's just the, the, the kinds of creativity and the way that they're expressed are very different. But I would suggest to anyone who is wanting to tap into their creativity just to have a daily practice. And it really doesn't matter what it is. So it could be writing in your journal, as trite as that sounds. I think all those things sort of open your portal because I've found that the more creative I am, the more creative I become. It reaches all aspects of my life, whether it be cooking, gardening, you sort of realize that you're a lot more creative in the way you approach life when you have a practice that you respect. In terms of where my ideas come from, I think sometimes I'm not always conscious of it because of where I've lived overseas in Istanbul, Paris and Naples. There's a lot of very, very old world symbolism that I was exposed to that probably surfaces in my work without me being super conscious of it. As the brand grows, I also have to be more deliberate about the way I design things so that I'm not just creating collections of 600 pieces, which I could do if I sat down for weeks and just made wax molds because I love doing that, you know, but I have to have categories like earrings, rings, pendants that I have to sort of respect from a a more logical business perspective. But that kind of helps give my work a bit of a framework in which to work, because I think if you don't have any framework, you can kind of get lost in your ideas. But if I say, okay, I've got five pairs of earrings that I'm going to make for this year, then it sort of helps me narrow down my ideas. And in a way, maybe put two or three ideas into one. A couple of years ago, I would have done like hundreds of pieces. And now I'm able to sort of condense all my ideas into like maybe 10 new pieces. So I'll say, okay, I want to put, you know, this bit of mythology in and I want to reuse the Gorgonian symbolism because I love that symbolism. So then I'll put those ideas together and make something maybe a little bit interesting, but it's still respecting those two inspirations rather than feeling like one idea per piece of jewellery. And I think the creative archetype wants to see framework and something concrete as a restraint. But I actually think it's kind of like, you know, if you're at the beach and you dig a hole, like the water will flow into that hole. You know what I mean? And it's sort of the same in my work. Like if you say to me, okay, you've got five pieces that you can make. 
I'm actually probably going to make more interesting and involved pieces than had you said you've got 500. So I think like channeling all the energy into like less has helped me to make a more concise brand offering. If you have any questions about jewellery making, creative practices, or whatever you are curious about when it comes to Cleopatra's Bling, drop us a line at hello at cleopatrasbling.com with the subject line podcast question. You can also send us your question in the form of a voice memo that we will edit into the podcast. Next time on the podcast. The biggest thing I've noticed overall in my move to a permaculture life is it allows me to broaden my scope. It takes me away from being self-centred and it gives me a lens through which to view the world. Until next time, stay curious. Bye. Thanks, James. (laughs) 